Okay, it's time to commit. 2024 is the year for prioritizing yourself. Begin your new smile journey with Byte, and you could start seeing results in just two to three weeks. Just order your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95 at Byte.com. Byte Clear Aligners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces. Plus, they offer financing options, accept eligible insurance, and you can pay with your HSA, FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot com. Start your confidence journey today with Byte. Delve into the shadows of the mind with Sleeping Dogs, a gripping murder mystery starring Academy Award winner Russell Crowe. Now available on digital. Crow portrays an ex-homicide detective, unraveling a brutal murder he can't recall. Uncovering secrets from his past, he learns a chilling truth. It's best to let sleeping dogs lie. Visit sleepingdogsmovie.com slash Wondery to watch Sleeping Dogs, now on digital. That's sleepingdogsmovie.com slash Wondery. Things started going haywire when they started pushing her away, especially Bobby. She was bitter. She was mad. She felt she'd been used and abused by everybody in Hollywood and show business. And she wanted vengeance. I also think she wanted a whole new start to her life, almost spiritual overload. Just couldn't cope, wanted a complete change of her life, was willing to throw in the whole bag caboodle. Do you miss your anonymity? Do you miss being able to go out and and not be recognized and go places uh, so that, as it used to be before you became famous, so no one would pay any attention to you? I'll tell you, I do in a way. However, I'm terribly grateful for everything that's happened because I remember when things weren't like this at all. But you do miss sometimes just being able to be... Completely yourself and someplace, and people just know you as another human being. Welcome to episode seven of The Killing of Marilyn Monroe. I'm your host, Jackie Moran. In previous episodes, we have seen how the most famous woman in the world became a pawn in the power games of men she could not control, and how her position as lover of presidents, mob bosses, rat packers, and communist sympathizers put her in the center of a deadly web of deceit, intrigue, and conspiracy. She knew things that she wasn't supposed to know, okay? She wrote things down in the diary that would have been very incriminating for high-level people. It could be the Kennedy people. I don't know. Bobby Kennedy would have had a motive because he had the love affair. The doctor could have had a reason the people up in the Cal Neva, the undesirable mafia people, would have, could have had a reason to kill it too. In this episode, we will examine Marilyn's turbulent last days as she struggled with drink, drugs, and depression, was fired from her final film, and faced rejection from the man she loved. And ultimately, we'll see how a degrading ordeal during which she was passed around a room of leering mobsters at a party hosted by Frank Sinatra proved to be the tragic star's final straw and sealed her fate. Love, I think it's a rare thing and not to be discounted at all, not to be pushed away in a corner. I think love and work are the only things that really happen to us. 
and everything else is just doesn't really matter. By the summer of 1962, Marilyn's personal life was in a mess, a situation that was not helped by her increasing reliance on prescription drugs. Doctors would give her, you pick me up, then also put you to sleep. She was on that cycle, and it can be a deadly cycle. She seemed to think that she had control over what she was taking. Elvis Presley had this problem, too, is that, well, I'm not a drug addict. These are prescription drugs. I don't have a drug problem. A doctor gave these to me. But if Marilyn had been popping pills for most of her career, her consumption at this time increased dramatically. And she was now in the habit of chasing the drugs down with champagne. Of course, when you're in a crisis in your life, you're going to take them more because you're having even more trouble sleeping or relaxing and functioning. So, yeah, I think her pill take upped in those final months, but it, it wasn't new to her. I mean, by then she had such a high resistance. Never particularly stable, even during the best of times, Marilyn had become spectacularly erratic during the final days and weeks of her life. She had increased her intake of pills and alcohol and had been increasingly willing to talk to any of dozens of the writers and columnists who followed her deterioration with avid interest. To the public, she was still Marilyn, the unassailable and glamorous movie star and the world's most lusted-after woman. In private, she was having a crisis. She was afraid of going crazy, which is kind of the way she put it. She had this history of mental illness. She didn't seem to inherit some of the worst aspects of it. She wasn't schizophrenic like her mother and her uncle were, but she definitely struggled with depression and anxiety. In 1960, 61, 62, a woman who turned 35 was considered over the hill or, or close to it. So for the world's love goddess, the most beautiful woman in the world, to turn 35, her press took a turn. Rather than saying she's the hottest thing in pictures, she's the ultimate in femininity, they started saying, how much longer could she go on? She's 35. She still looks good, but she can't pull it off for so much longer. It terrified her because... All the love that she received in her career, all the money, all the attention, all the film roles that were offered to her were based solely on her beauty. When she felt that she might be losing it, it was almost unbearable to her. As Marilyn's depression worsened, she began relying on her sessions with psychiatrist Dr. Ralph Greenson a situation complicated by the fact that she was also sleeping with him. She was obviously astoundingly beautiful, but she was also very needy and she was a very damaged person. I can see very easily where Marilyn had become very disillusioned with Hollywood, with her career, with everyone wanting something from her. She was someone who was signed to a studio contract at an early age and became a huge star and was still vastly underpaid, even though she was one of the hugest movie stars in all of Hollywood. She's someone who tried to be shrewd about her business dealings, but seemed to always be the victim of, or the pawn of the men in her life. And I think that it was crippling to her how dark her thoughts were and how unhappy her life was because she had to face the camera and be the 
the woman that the world desired, and it, was, it became a tremendous pressure for her. You know, I mean, I have feelings sometimes, or some days when I, there are certain things that, gee, I think, gee, oh, if only, if only I were a, a cleaning woman. This was not Marilyn's first mental health crisis. A year earlier, shortly after filming The Misfits and following her divorce from Arthur Miller, she had even been committed to an institution. When that movie was finished, and then it opened and it flopped, and her marriage broke up, she went into, I think, one of the deepest, darkest depressions. When her friends heard this, they were alarmed. They knew that she had a history of having suicidal thoughts. And so they told her to her psychiatrists. And the psychiatrist became alarmed and said, oh, Marilyn, I'm going to put you in the hospital for a nice long rest. That Marilyn said, that's the ticket. That's just what I need. I need to be in the hospital where I'm going to be pampered and taken care of. Not knowing that they were really bringing her to a mental institution on the floor for the dangerously insane. It turned into something that included electroshock, and it was much more profound and deep and scary than, than she had thought it would be. She was committed to a mental institution, straightjacketed the whole bit, and she was just completely like a prisoner. They had her like an animal, and she wasn't insane, and she knew that she could talk coherently, but they just wouldn't give her a chance to explain herself, or they kept her drugged. When a sympathetic nurse muggled her a piece of paper and pencil, and she wrote Joe DiMaggio on it, and then the nurse brought her a phone, and she called Joe and said, you got to get me out of here. Please get me out of here. Marilyn and Joe DiMaggio had been divorced for six years, but when she needed him, he dropped everything for her. It was he who roared down to wherever she was being housed and using his status as a strong, loud man and as a celebrity in his own right, demanded that she be released. He had no power to get her out of there, really, but Joe DiMaggio was there and he was blustering around and he said, if I don't get my wife out of here, I'm going to take this hospital apart brick by brick. And he got her out of there. He got her out the next day. So naturally, they returned her to him. And for the rest of her life, he sort of was a kind of guardian. In the spring of 1962, Marilyn began shooting a new movie, co-starring Dean Martin and Sid Charisse. Something's Gotta Give was a lightweight romantic comedy and was supposed to herald her return to box office success after the disappointment of The Misfits. But the problems were there from the start. The last film she worked on, her co-star was Dean Martin, who was, of course, best friends with Frank Sinatra. So there's a whole incestuous circle with this group. And I think she found herself in the middle of that. She was always very insecure in her work, but now, because they were starting to say that she was at a tender age, she was even more hesitant to face the cameras because there was so much pressure on her to look good. Take its toll. <laughs> Sometimes, you know, the work is so, you try to be true. Uh, you feel sometimes it's on the verge of a kind of craziness, but it isn't really craziness. It's really getting the truest part of yourself out, and it's very hard, you know. I mean, it's not easy, let's say. On the very first day of production, Marilyn came down with a sinus infection and could not make it on set. It began a pattern that saw the troubled star take long absences from filming, citing poor health. And when she was there, her behavior was erratic. 
she was showing up less and less on the film. And the studio was getting more and more frustrated with her because she was costing them a lot of money. I mean, every time she didn't show up, everybody's salary had to be paid and they were losing another day. Marilyn was unstable even in the best of circumstances under the pressure of her falling and failing movie career with the understanding that something's got to give wasn't going well. She was even more unstable than usual. Eventually, on June 8th, one week after Marilyn turned 36, she was, in Hollywood speak, released from the project. They actually fired her right after her 36th birthday. Did this represent a sad end to a sparkling career? Not everyone thinks so. Here's celebrity biographer Mark Bego. Of course, there's a lot of speculation, too, about that last movie. I was just watching recently uh, bits of it where she's in the swimming pool and in scenes with Wally Cox and with Dean Martin. And she seems not to be this lost person that everyone is painting her as being circa 1962. She seems someone who's very on top of her game. She was surrounded by a lot of people who she wanted to have help her career. And Marilyn herself wasn't about to take her dismissal lying down. In the days that followed, she gave defiant interviews to Life, Cosmopolitan, and Vogue magazines. And by the end of June, 20th Century Fox not only relented and rehired her, but did so on improved terms. Marilyn wasn't beat yet. She was in her happiest mood the last weeks of her life because she just signed a new contract with 20th Century. They were going to resume filming. Something's got to give. She got more money like she asked for. Before filming could recommence, however, Marilyn was to undergo an ordeal so degrading that it can only be compared to the abuse she had received as a child in foster care. And the worst thing was, it came at the hands of those she had thought of as friends. On the weekend of July 28th, the last weekend of Marilyn's life, Frank Sinatra invited her to his Lake Tahoe resort, the Calneva Lodge. Present, one way or another, would be all the key players in the deadly game of power, leverage, and betrayal that had come to define Marilyn's love life. Frank Sinatra, he wanted to renovate the Calneva Lodge. During the renovations, they made tunnels underneath the casino floor. The reason why the tunnels were built was because the FBI was watching that place constantly. You cannot have people that are undesirable frequent that casino or else Frank Sinatra would lose his license. So people used to walk in there in in disguise and then they would go downstairs into the tunnel and take the disguise off and they could have meetings there. Uh, mafia meetings or or whatever, what was going on there. Sinatra had told Marilyn he wanted to discuss a movie project, but his real intentions were very different. He was acting on behalf of mafia boss Sam Giancana, and they planned to use Marilyn's weekend at Calneva for altogether more sinister purposes. Here's Gianni Russo, godfather actor and former employee of mob boss Frank Costello, who was present at the Cal Neva that weekend. He talks us through just what happened. I was in Lake Tahoe that weekend, again, to be the eyes and ears for Mr. Costello when Sam Gene Connor and Sinatra was commanded to bring everybody there. She went up to the Cal Neva 
and there was a wild party that went on that weekend. A lot of the Chicago mob people were, were there. They had her room set up. They needed Marilyn because they were going to use Marilyn as the ploy. Exploiting Sinatra's connection to the Kennedys through Peter Lawford, Giancana had also arranged for JFK, Bobby, and even Father Joe Kennedy to come for the weekend. With Marilyn's room wired with hidden cameras, they planned to secure the ultimate hold over the family patriarch who had done a deal with the mafia to secure the presidency in exchange for a promise to take back the mob's Cuban casinos. They were going to try to set her up. Bobby Kennedy and John, they wanted to catch the two boys with Marilyn one more time and then threaten them with that blackmail because nobody's going to vote for a Catholic president cheating on his wife with Marilyn Monroe and the brother Bobby. They thought they would photograph Marilyn with John and Bobby, but John didn't go. Something happened. He didn't come, but Joe came. Joe and Bobby came. So that's what that whole meeting was about. But they wanted to do it their way and blackmail them, show them the pictures. Now, now invade Cuba. Kill Cuba. Marilyn had become the victim of her desperate need for powerful men as lovers. Frank Sinatra, Sam Giancana, the Kennedys, plus in all likelihood J. Edgar Hoover listening in too. So what did Marilyn do? She did what she had done as a lonely foster child, as a wannabe model, as a casting couch starlet. She dug in and fought back. Marilyn went crazy. Some got going for this, and she went bananas. She said, I'm going public with this. Bobby was with her, but you could hear the next night that she was screaming, I'm out of here. I don't want a part of this. She said, I'm out of here. I'm going public. Screw you, Kennedys. The real horror was still to come, however. The mobsters may not have gotten the blackmail pictures they wanted, but they did have a distraught, emotionally vulnerable Marilyn Monroe at their disposal. It was a situation they exploited in the worst way imaginable. Marilyn Monroe was afraid for her life. It was a situation where, where it got out of hand. Marilyn Monroe was taken advantage of. She was physically taken advantage of by people. She was drugged. They had a wild party up there. Marilyn was in a mess and she was drinking a lot and taking a lot of pills and she even overdosed that night. They recovered her. In desperation, Marilyn turned to the one man who had always rescued her, the only man who had ever loved her unconditionally. Next thing you know, she calls Joe DiMaggio, who was in San Francisco, and she asked Joe DiMaggio to come and get her, and he didn't. This time, not even Jolton Joe could save her. A photographer's wife told me this, and he's a a well-known photographer. His wife told me that the pictures were, Marilyn was down on her hands and knees, and Sam Giancana was riding her like a horse. A degrading position for Marilyn to be in. Marilyn left the Calneva Lodge humiliated and degraded by Sam Giancana and his mob buddies. Betrayed by Frank Sinatra, abandoned by Joe DiMaggio, and with her relationship with Bobby Kennedy in shambles. The mafia didn't get their photos, but for Giancana, the job was as good as done anyway. Marilyn had threatened Bobby Kennedy to his face. She had finally had enough. She was going public. She flailed out, 
sometimes vengefully, in ways that made her, in many ways, the most dangerous woman in America. I think Marilyn Monroe was just, at that point, tired of being used. And I think that John F. Kennedy and Robert Kennedy may have said things to Marilyn Monroe, things they probably should not have told Marilyn Monroe. I think at that point, she just was so angry she felt like she was being used that she told them, I'm going to go to the news tomorrow and tell them everything. You know, Bobby Kennedy was nobody to fool around with. Knowing her, when she said, I'm going to the press, I'm going to disclose you, well, that's just like taking those pictures. Yes, I think there's two things in human beings that they, as I think there is in myself, that they want to be alone, but they also want to be together. Because I think I have also a, a gay side to me, also a sad side. And I think that's way with people also. But there is something in people where they want, they need solitude for a while. Next time on The Killing of Marilyn Monroe. Marilyn Monroe, we all know, had tried to commit suicide a few times, and every single time, she wrote a letter. There was no letter. There was no glass of water for her to even swallow anything. He claimed that when he entered Marilyn Monroe's bedroom, the area looked like it was staged. It was not the normal scene for a suicide victim. In Washington, J. Edgar Hoover, director of the FBI, told his chief aide, Clyde Tolson, and other agents that although he felt Marilyn had been murdered, he did not plan to launch an investigation. The Killing of Marilyn Monroe is hosted by me, Jackie Moran, executive produced by Dylan Howard, and is a production of Broad and Water Studios and Endeavor Audio. Executive producers also include Tom Freestone, James Robertson, and Andy Tillett. The series is produced by Carrie Budge and written by Dominic Utten. Reporting by Doug Montero. The series is mixed and engineered by Sean Kravitz and Sam Ada. Scoring by Benstown. There is so much more to this story and you don't want to miss anything, I can assure you. Make sure you subscribe to The Killing of Marilyn Monroe wherever you get podcasts. Audible is the destination for thrilling audio entertainment. Allow your imagination to be piqued by stories that are brought to life through captivating sound design, eerie soundscapes, and dynamic performances. As an Audible member, you'll be able to keep your heart rate up month after month because you can choose one title a month to keep from the entire catalog, including the latest bestsellers and new releases. If you're in the mood for a shocking psychological thriller, check out None of This is True by Lisa Jewell. Embrace brand new exclusive thrillers from bestselling authors who are guaranteed to keep you gripped. New members can try Audible free for 30 days. Visit audible.com slash thrill or text thrill to 500-500. That's audible.com slash thrill or text thrill to 500-500.